From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Today, we continue our series of some of our favorite interviews of the year. First, we'll listen to Terry's interview with Seth Meyers. As the host of NBC's Late Night, it's his job to be funny, even when the news is catastrophic. Myers has written a children's book called I'm Not Scared, You're Scared. And we'll hear from comedian, writer, director, and actor Stephen Merchant. He co-created the British comedy series The Office with Ricky Gervais. His most recent series is a comedy thriller called The Outlaws, about people court-ordered to do community service for low-level crimes. It co-stars Christopher Walken. Plus, rock critic Ken Tucker will talk about his favorite music releases of 2022. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Today, we continue our series featuring some of our favorite interviews of the year with Terry's interview with Seth Meyers, the host of NBC's Late Night. Many of us first got to know him when he anchored Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live a position he held from 2006 to 2013. He was also a head writer at SNL. This interview was taped in March when he had just finished a children's book called I'm Not Scared, You're Scared. Seth Meyers, welcome back to Fresh Air. Such a pleasure to have you back on our show. I want to talk with you about your new children's book, which I really like. It's called I'm Not Scared, You're Scared. So I'd actually like you to read from the beginning of the book. There once was a bear who was easily scared. Each night before going to sleep, he would tie a bell to his door that would make a noise if anyone tried to sneak in, because even a bear who is easily scared is a very heavy sleeper. He was even afraid of his own reflection, and because he couldn't see himself, he never brushed well and always had food stuck in his teeth. When you're a scared bear with food in your teeth, you don't have many friends. Bear had one, rabbit. Rabbit was never scared. She read scary stories. She slept with her door wide open and she brushed her teeth while hanging from a tree branch by her ears. This gave her very strong ears. One day, Rabbit made an announcement. Bear, we are going on an adventure. Bear suggested that instead of going on an adventure, they could read a book about adventures. That way, if anything goes wrong, we can just close the book. Rabbit looked at her friend and asked, Bear, are you scared? And Bear replied, I'm not scared. You're scared. And with that, Bear walked past Rabbit and out the front door. Uh, So they actually do go on an adventure. Do you want to explain what happens? They go on an adventure. And at every hurdle, Bear is afraid, but doesn't want to admit he's afraid. And Rabbit tries to impress upon Bear that The woods are not scary. The river is not deep. The mountain is not high. And Bear chooses instead to take the long way around all of those tasks. And at each point, Rabbit asks him if he's scared. And he continues to dig in his heel and stress that he's not scared. Rabbit's scared. But then eventually, Rabbit does something that's genuinely scary. And it goes wrong. And Bear is forced to confront his own fears to save his friend, which is the climax of the book. But it really is a book about friendship. It's about our relationship with fear. It's about the moments when you have to push past it. It's about the moments when maybe you should listen to your fear a little bit more. And hopefully it's a book that parents 
can read to their kids and then talk about exactly what their kids are afraid of and how they're approaching dealing with that. I know you obviously didn't intend this, but when I read the book, I was thinking about the children in Ukraine who've been forced to find courage and strength as they flee Ukraine or hide in their homes. And I'm sure they're terrified, but they're forced to rise to the occasion because they don't have a choice. And that's one of the messages in your book that like when you're forced to, you find the courage. Um, So I'm wondering if you're thinking about that at all. You know, the book was written during the pandemic, which obviously was another time where I think people were wondering how to talk to their kids about fear. Although it was a weird time for us because my wife and I were far more afraid during COVID than my kids were just because they were, I think, too young to fully process it. But there was something about the idea that we were living through a really scary time. And you want to believe that the human spirit will rise to the occasion and will be courageous, especially when their courage will benefit others who are in danger. And even on a small level, you know, I do want to look back at this time and tell my kids, hey, was you did a really cool thing for two years. You guys wore masks when you went to school. And that was great that you did that. That was the sacrifice that you did for other people. And it's a shame that moment's become so politicized because I think you know, I grew up at a time where I think it's arguable that I never did anything or had to do anything close to what my kids just had to go through. And so I think it's nice to be able to have these moments to say, oh yeah, you might be afraid of that, but you would, you would rise above it if your brother or your sister were in danger. And that's something you should know about yourself. Do you like reading to your kids? I love reading my kids. It's my favorite thing I do. It's in fact, this terrible thing has started to happen, which is now my boys want me to make up a Batman and Robin story every night. And it's so exhausting. <laughs> it's so it's so soul crushing knowing I have to come up with a full superhero story every night. Tell them to pay you. I know. You, you get paid for this work. I'm like, look, this is not daddy does not come cheap. I'm in I'm in uh, I'm in guilds. I'm in SAG-AFTRA. Um, yeah. So uh, but they I love reading books to them. And especially when it's a book where they just get quiet and focused. I love nothing more than seeing the faces of my children paying attention to a story. So what were you afraid of as a child? I was afraid of a great many things. I was afraid of anything that was speed related. Unlike my brother, you know, I didn't like skiing too fast. I didn't like riding my bike too fast. I was always worried about, I'm also, it should be noted, pretty clumsy. So I think early on, I knew those were not the things that I was built for. I was also afraid it should be noted of being in front of people on stage. And that I think is the one I realized it was worth pushing through because there might actually be some innate talent that was worth showing to people. Whereas I think I knew early on, I wasn't going to make the U S ski team. (laughs) (laughs) How did you push through the courage to be on stage? You know, it was, I had to build sort of safe ways to do it. I never had the courage to audition for school plays, but our senior year in high school, and again, it was someone else's idea, said, hey, I think we should do a comedy night. And 
you know, we'll do sketches. And it was a version which I think probably happens to this day at uh, high school comedy shows and, and middle school comedy shows across the country. You do sort of a tailored version of an SNL sketch where, you know, you drop in teachers' names instead of, you know, in our time, for example, uh, Hans and Franz might have had some issues with our principal. Um, so it was that sort of thing. And being on stage and doing that was really fun. But it was sort of a controlled environment. We, you know, we weren't judged until we went up on stage and did stuff that we were pretty confident people would like. And then it was being at Northwestern and seeing the the college improv troupe and, and knowing that's what I wanted to do and seeing it and realizing that it was going to be worth pushing through the fear to try and do that. And uh, once I got past that, it was sort of off and running as far as the anxiety part of it went. You know, your first two children have great origin stories. Um, so the first time you, your wife gave birth, she was in the Uber when she started going into labor and you made it to the hospital like just in time. And t- tell us the compressed version of the second time around when she didn't even make it into the Uber. Yeah, second time around, we basically, she felt a contraction. We got in the elevator. We walked out of the elevator into our lobby and she said, uh, I'm having the baby right now. And I told her that was ridiculous. I should note that I'm not or and have never been an OBGYN. Uh, <laughs> and I know very little about the uh, uh, women's reproductive system. But I boldly told her that was uh, fine. And then uh, she and then I kind of looked down and it was very clear from the shape of her sweatpants that she was not lying. And so she got on the ground and in I would say 10 minutes later, it was also about a 40 minute drive to the hospital. So this was a, a huge decision by her part to stay. And uh, yeah, she delivered the baby in the lobby. And uh, by the time he was born, because uh, I had called 911, uh, not that I'm the hero in the story, but I, I had called 911. Um, I mean, everybody always talks about what my wife did, but I think both her and I were pretty heroic on the day. No, but uh, so there were uh, police officers and uh, firemen uh, surrounding us when our son Axel was born. So the day after your wife gave birth in the lobby, you did your show. Yeah. <laughs> and your opening monologue was the story of this crazy birth. Does NBC not offer paternity leave? <laughs> well, this is you, you have brought up what uh, we like to call in our marriage uh, a sticking point, Terry. Um, <laughs> uh, it should, so it should be noted that I absolutely uh, could have taken that Monday off. He was born on a Sunday morning and everything was fine. You know, he was healthy. Mom was healthy. Uh, her parents were in town. Her sister was in town. And to be honest, I said to her, I got you got to you got to let me go tell this story. This story's too good. I don't want to sit on it for another day. And uh, to my wife's great credit, even she appreciated. And she also knew that the story was about, you know, her her superhuman ability to deliver her own baby in a lobby. So I, I did have her blessing when I went in and told that story that day. And, you know, of the shows, I don't think this is a show that I will go back uh, over the years and look back at individual closer looks per se, but I'm very happy that there is that sort of timestamp episode where I can one day show Axel. This is a, this is not even, you know, two days after you were born. This is your dad on TV telling the story. You know, in your uh, latest Netflix comedy special, uh, which is called Lobby Baby, at the end of the special, you do comedy from your wife's point of view. You say, I, you know, I always talk about my wife and my comedy, but I sometimes imagine what 
what it would be like from her point of view. So you tell a bunch of things from her point of view. What do you think she was thinking <laughs> while you were calling 911? Well, she <laughs> she did say at one point in the you know, the whole uh, ado about having the baby in the lobby. She did look at me and say, stop writing because she could see while it was happening. I talk to myself when I'm writing or when I'm, you know, formulating an idea and uh, which my wife loves to catch me doing. I would say if she has a catchphrase, it's who are you talking to when I'm alone <laughs> in the kitchen? So uh, it, it was like, while once everything calmed down and, you know, she was getting uh, loaded up into the ambulance, she looked at me and she said, please stop writing because she could tell that I was just immediately taking it and turning it into material. Since we've been talking about the opening monologue on um, the day after your wife gave birth in the lobby, let's hear the end of it. And and this part, you know, there's some funny parts of it, but it's very moving what you have to say. And you're talking about, at the beginning here, you're talking about your son's middle name and how he got that name. Uh, his middle name is uh, Strahl, which is my mother-in-law, Joanne. That's her uh, parents' name. That's her maiden name. And I never met my wife's grandparents, uh, but I've heard so much about them. And they were, uh, they were Holocaust survivors who met uh, the day after uh, they were liberated. They met in a hospital in Austria. And uh, days like this, you really, you know, when someone is born, you just have such an appreciation for everyone in your lineage who lived so that you could have this moment. And uh, so we're just so happy to give him uh, this name for people who obviously had uh, had to work so hard to do that. And... Uh, uh, but of course, mostly, I just want to uh, thank my wife who, uh, you know, obviously has to get an apartment closer to the hospital. <laughs> but... <laughs> I mean, she's so amazing, and I, you know, my kids, like, you know, I haven't known them very long, but I can guarantee you, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna love them unconditionally forever, but uh, as far, when I, just the speed in which she took this guy and, like, had him on her, and I was watching him, like, oh my god, he's gonna be, that kid's gonna be fine forever because of her. Um, she's really amazing. I'm, I'm still getting choked up thinking about how brave I was. <laughs> but, um... Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously, I just want to uh, thank uh, my beautiful wife, Alexi, who uh, is uh, uh, twice now an incredible rock star with these incredible uh, deliveries and stories. And uh, thank you to, to everyone here for indulging me on this crazy story. And welcome uh, Axel Straw Myers to the world. So is this the only time you actually teared up during an opening monologue of your show? You know, I did about Ash as well. And I will say, after the 2016 election, you know, that morning I spoke and I wasn't tearing up because of the election result, but I did tear up. I just remember tearing up because it caught me off guard. You know, my mom's name is Hillary and I got really uh, it did make me sad thinking that maybe my mom would never live to see a female president. and. So I think those, but I will say this, it, I have only teared up on the show um, speaking about my family, which is not a surprise because I am a real softy when it comes to that. You have a third child now. What was that birth like? 
Well, <laughs> it was a home birth. We did a home birth. Oh, like why even pretend like you're going to make it to the hospital? When you only make it 0.1% of the way from your apartment to the hospital <laughs> <laughs> the last time out. Um, and we put the boys to bed. About five minutes later, my wife said my water broke. And about six hours later, Addie was born in the bathtub and slept between us and has been a very, very chill baby for her the first six months of her life. Um, I would not have been okay. I shouldn't say, well, let's go back to the theme of fear. I would have been terrified to do a home birth for our first baby, but having done it a few times, you know, especially having done it in the lobby and realizing that also works, you know, uh, it was pretty special to do a home birth. There was nothing medical about it. It was all miracle. And it was a really cool thing to be a part of. And when I say a part of, I mean that I stood behind three other women and watched <laughs> through my hands. Who are the three women? A midwife, a doula, and your mother-in-law? And, uh, and a mother-in-law. Uh-huh. Yeah. They, uh, they gave me exactly what they knew I could handle which was very little. (laughs) We're listening to Terry's interview with Seth Meyers. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. And Ken Tucker will talk about his favorite pop music of 2022. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Seth Meyers, the host of NBC's Late Night, SNL alum, and now the author of a new children's book called I'm Not Scared, You're Scared. One of the things you do on your show is spotlight some of your writers who are also performers. So I want to play this musical sketch that I thought was really hilarious. And um, I don't know if you had a hand in writing this or not, but I think it's great that you presented this, even if you didn't write it. (laughs) Um, So the occasion was uh, the nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. And you mentioned that it's the first black woman nominee to the court. And that is an interesting sidebar. She did improv in college. Then one of your writers, Amber Ruffin, sings about how important it is to her as a black woman to have a black woman nominee. Then another writer, Jenny Hagel, who's a lesbian, sings about how inspirational it is to have a woman nominee. Then a third writer, Mike Scollins, who's a white guy, chimes in. And so I want to just play that song, and then we'll talk about it. When I look at Katanji Brown Jackson, I feel inspired. I feel motivated, like I can do anything. I see her, and I think, maybe I could be something so special. If my eyes could see the future, They'd know that it looks bright Maybe I'd be unafraid I'd have the ear of a nation Maybe I could help to make our wrongs right Ladies and gentlemen, Jenny Hagel Maybe I could be something so special I would try to see the good in my fellow man Maybe folks would look to me To be the inspiration Women of color would look at me And know they can Ladies and gentlemen Oh no, Scollins? Maybe I could be What are you doing? 
I'm inspired, so I'm singing along. No, no, she's inspiring because she's a woman. And because she's black. She also did improv like me. That inspires me. No! Stylets, get out! But she, she was an improviser. Seth, tell them. I'll allow it. Maybe my improv classes were worth it. You've gotta be kidding me. Tell my mom she's not alone in blowing her two grand. Oh, gross! Maybe improvisers as a people will finally come together to take suggestions and reply, yes and! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Allie Horde. No, Scollins, you ruined it. I just think that's so funny. Um, is, is there a backstory to how that sketch was written? It is the backstory of how many sketches at our show are written and why we're so lucky to have the writing staff we have. Amber Ruffin just showed up with that sketch fully written and showed it to me and our head writer, Alex Bays, and then it immediately went into production. And I think we did it the next day. You have a diverse writing room. And um, one of the sketches that you often do is jokes. Seth can't tell. Why don't you describe what that's about? Again, just came to us gift wrapped by Jenny Hagel and Amber Ruffin, who just heard singing that beautiful song that Scollins ruined. And they, uh, uh, but you know, uh, particularly Jenny, who wrote a lot of monologues for us, she was a monologue joke writer when we hired her. And she wrote these really funny jokes that I would say to her, you know, these would be really funny if you, uh, Puerto Rican lesbian, told. But if I told, I think they would not go well at all. And we would laugh about it because she appreciated that that was true. That Sometimes it's not just the the joke itself. The delivery system matters. And then they pitched, what if we did jokes Seth can't tell? You'll do the setups and, and we'll do the punchlines to these jokes. And I mean, I can't believe how many we've done, but it's sort of just like the monologue. We do a monologue every night and jokes Seth can't tell. It's its own refillable bucket. And they're just joyous to do. It's so much fun to sit out there with the two of them. So let's get to the reality of jokes Seth can't tell. I mean, they're jokes that, you can't can't tell as a white man because it would look like you're clueless or that you're punching down. Do you feel like you've actually, you know, in this era where comics often complain about they're not allowed to tell certain jokes or else they'll be canceled, is it really helpful to have a diverse writing staff who you can run ideas past and they can explain why something does or doesn't work and how a joke might have implications that you don't recognize but they exist? A hundred percent. And it's been so helpful for us. And, you know, part of it is it would not have been malicious intent had I told them if I didn't have Amber, if I didn't have Jenny, if I didn't have other people on the writing staff, I think there would be things over the years that I would have said that if Amber didn't work here, she'd be sitting at home and would say, oh, man, I wish she hadn't said that. And yet it would not have been malicious intent on my part. So much of it is just about being lucky enough to have someone step in and say, hey, just FYI, here's how someone like me hears that joke. And then once I have that knowledge, I have no interest in telling that joke that way because I did not realize that I was, you know, cutting myself off at the knees and, and basically selling out the joke that I was trying to tell. So they've saved us from making a lot of mistakes. I do not feel like anything we've ever cut because someone stepped in and said that's going to be hurtful to someone has made our show any worse. If anything, it's made the show better. And uh, yeah, I'm eternally grateful to have them around. Um, just, you know, again, it's nice going through life, realizing you don't know everything and uh, trying to learn a new thing every day. This has been great to talk with you. Congratulations on your children's book. I wish you 
all good things and look forward to the next time we talk. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Terry. Seth Myers is the host of NBC's Late Night. He spoke with Terry Gross. Rock critic Ken Tucker has been re-listening to and thinking about the pop music released in 2022. For Ken, the year has been defined by two releases in particular, Beyonce's album Renaissance and the debut album from the duo Wet Leg. He talks about these and more in his year-end roundup. I'm one of one. I'm number one. I'm the only one. Don't even waste your time trying to compete with me. No one else in this world can think like me. I'm twisted, I'll contradicted. Keep him addicted. Lies on his lips, I lick it. Unique. Beyonce's album Renaissance, released in the middle of 2022, felt like a return to at least some kind of normalcy after the pandemic years. Its celebration of disco rhythms and club culture was a way for Beyoncé to ally herself with her massive audience while also transcending it to soar above her fans. Part of the pleasure throughout this big, bursting blast of an album was hearing Beyoncé take the air out of her own regal image, joking on the song that began this review, I'm too classy for this world. I want to play a bit from a song I didn't get to in my original review, the lush, languid, plastic off the sofa, Beyonce's words of comfort and challenge to her romantic partner in life, filled with the sort of assurances any one of us would like to hear from a loved one. Beyoncé's Renaissance is my album of the year, my favorite of any genre in the past 12 months. Listening within those various genres, I have to say that country music had a pretty weak year, with little that was fresh or innovative. In fact, my favorite country performance of the year was on TV. Jessica Chastain's portrayal of Tammy Wynette in the Showtime miniseries George and Tammy. Michael Shannon as George Jones? Uh, Not so much. The best music book of the year is R.J. Smith's spellbinding biography of Chuck Berry. Now, back to recordings. In hip-hop, there was Kendrick Lamar's Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, as well as the very potent collaboration between Danger Mouse and Black Thought called Cheat Codes. Among singer-songwriters, Angel Olsen, Wise Blood, Carly Rae Jepsen, and Bonnie Raitt all released beautiful semi-autobiographical collections with vivid detailing. Blame it on me Hold up my faults All to see Truth is love's first casualty Blame it on me 
Blame it on me It's not the way love's supposed to be How can you so casually blame it on me That's Bonnie Raitt singing Blame It On Me from her album Just Like That. There's also an album I would classify the debut of the year, Wet Leg, by the two young British women who also call themselves Wet Leg. They make an intense version of punk-influenced pop and write about sex as explicitly and as romantically as Beyoncé, but Wet Leg is doing everything on a smaller scale, aiming to be as common and relatable as Beyoncé is exceptional and aspirational. For Wetleg, being in love is a punch in the gut and a woozy condition for which their music rhymes meditate with medicate. I need to lie down, only just got up. I feel so uninspired, I feel like giving up. I feel like someone has punched me in the guts, but I kind of like it because it feels like being in love. At the time of my review back in April, I said that we'd need to wait to hear whether Wet Leg would turn out to be a novelty act or something with staying power. But given the rave reports of their touring performances and the ongoing rewards of repeated listenings to this collection, I think it's fair to say they've earned their place among the year's most accomplished music. Ken Tucker is Fresh Air's rock critic. You can find his best of 2022 review on our website, freshair.npr.org. Coming up, we hear from comedian, writer, director, and actor Stephen Merchant. He co-created the British comedy series The Office with Ricky Gervais and the show Extras. His most recent series is called The Outlaws. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Stephen Merchant is best known for co-creating with Ricky Gervais the incredibly influential British comedy The Office. Merchant's newest show is called The Outlaws. It's about a group of misfits in Bristol, England, who have to complete court-ordered community service. Merchant found inspiration for The Outlaws from his parents, who supervised people sentenced to community service for more minor criminal offenses. He also set the show in his hometown of Bristol. Merchant plays a hapless, divorced lawyer caught by police in his car with a sex worker. Among the other outlaws is a small-time criminal played by the always great Christopher Walken. Merchant co-created the show with Elgin James. Along with The Office, Stephen Merchant co-created with Ricky Gervais the show Extras and had his own HBO series, Hello Ladies. But let's start with a scene from The Outlaws. Here the six outlaws have shown up for their first day of community service and are meeting their supervisor, Diane, played by Jessica Gunning. The second voice you'll hear is Stephen Merchant. Some people think that community payback is an easy option, a soft touch. Newsflash, 
It ain't. You will repay your debt to society by working the number of hours mandated by the court. My name is Diane Pemberley. I'm your supervisor. And I could be a good guy. Or a mean bastard. Your choice. Good guy, please. You don't choose. You said it was our choice. It was a figure of speech. It wasn't entirely clear. Are you a troublemaker? No, no. Definitely, definitely not. When I call your name, say here. John Halloran. Here. Shouldn't be. Frank Sheldon. What's the agenda, Brenda? Christian Taylor. Yo. Okay, what are you people not getting? Just say here. Myrna Okiki. Air in body, not in spirit. I don't even know what that means. Gregory Dillard? Yeah, that's me. Just say here. Yeah, here, yeah, here. Rani Rakowski? Yeah. Thank you. So that's a scene from the new show, The Outlaws, co-created by my guest, Stephen Merchant. Stephen Merchant, welcome to Fresh Air. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. So like I said, the the show is in part inspired by your parents. So they supervised uh, community service? They supervised community service uh, offenders, as they used to refer to them, Um, as you say, in my hometown of Bristol. And um, even as a sort of teenager, I always thought, uh, it was an interesting world because my mother would tell me about the sorts of people that, that come through the door. And they were all such a varied bunch. I remember she told me about an old guy who was caught stealing cabbages and other vegetables from people's garden allotments. And she realised that he was coming back constantly and that he sort of just liked the social aspect and was sort of getting himself arrested to then get community service to then come back each year. And I mean, why he didn't join, you know, a sort of, I don't know, an amateur dramatic society or something. But um and then there was a guy I went to school with uh, who who was the world's laziest thief. He once got caught breaking into a house to steal a TV and the, and the homeowners came back and they said, Dave, what are you doing? And he went, I'm not Dave. And they went, yeah, you are. You live next door. And he was breaking into his own neighbor's house. I mean, he didn't even go a block over. And so my mother would tell me about these people. And I just thought, what an interesting bunch you know of people that would never normally associate or or encounter each other in any other walk of life and um and for some reason that parked itself in my head and it's been there uh, ever since until until we made the show so was that your parents main job or did they volunteer for that or my father um began as a plumber and went through various jobs um but but yeah sort of settled into the community service world sort of later in life, as did my mother, who'd got a sort of job and, and had sort of brought him in. It was a bit of nepotism, I think. She'd sort of got him a job there. And uh, that was what they did, really, until they retired. Yeah. Um, and so it sort of was, you know, they were very tangentially involved with law and order. And I've always wanted to do a, a show that sort of got a thrillery aspect, a crime aspect. And it seemed like an interesting sort of backdoor way into a, into a crime story. Are your parents still both alive? They're both still alive, long since retired. Um, my mother proudly says that that character you played there, Diane, played by Jessica Gunning, who was very much a kind of butt of jokes in the show. My mother proudly says, oh, it's based on me. It's based yeah, well, on that, me. That was my question. <laughs> it seemed like it was not necessarily the most flattering uh portrayal of someone doing the job your parents had well it's not my mother at all it's just it is the job that she used to do but of course it's a lot more fun to make the character you know a sort of would-be authoritarian who's got no real power um but thinks they have it's a much funnier way to do it my mother i think was just was was much more um didn't have that kind of ego just got got on with the job so do you have a bone to pick with middle managers i sort of sense a trend through some of your writing (laughs) 
Do I ever? No, I don't have a. I don't have a bunch of it with middle managers specifically, but I'm endlessly fascinated by kind of people whose ego is corrupted, if you like, by a little bit of power, and that's endlessly interesting to me. I don't know why ego is is constantly fascinating, and 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 I think so much of ego is born out of insecurity, and I'm always interested in what are the insecurities that people have that sort of turns them into monsters. Well, you know, your first big success was The Office, the original British version that you co-wrote and co-directed with uh, the star of the show, Ricky Gervais. And people probably remember, but the show takes place at a paper company in Slough, which is a city west of London. And uh, The Office is run by Gervais's character, David Brent. How, how would you describe David Brent? You know, you mentioned earlier about my uh, obsession with middle management, and obviously, you know, he is the ultimate sort of middle manager. Um, at the time when the show uh, was coming together, political correctness was a big buzzword in, in the UK. I'm sure it was here. And it seemed very interesting to us. Uh, there was a number of people that we'd worked with who were trying to pay lip service to this new culture of of sort of political correctness. Uh, and yet it wasn't really internalized. It was sort of an act. And that whatever old kind of prejudices they had were still lingering. And and to me, that David Brent sort of embodies that awkward transition. And, you know, a sort of suburban man who, you know, has his sort of petty grievances and 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 craves the adulation of his staff. He wants to be seen as a funny man and but also as a great boss. And suddenly a documentary film crew have shown up at his office and it gives him the opportunity to present a version of himself to the world. But there's a big gap between who he thinks he is and who he really is. And that was what was so delicious about that character and, and what was, I think, makes it a very sort of um, kind of rich character and one that was, you know, as you know, remade in the States with Steve Carell in that role. Um, and I don't know, captured it to us something about a lot of sort of I suppose almost what we'd call little Englanders, you know, people in sort of provincial towns who are perhaps craving status and it's not really there. And so they have their little fiefdoms, whether it's the office they work in or or whatever. And um, yeah, and it, and it captured a moment in time. And, and it was also at that time in the UK, there was a spate of reality TV that was about real life people. And just following them around, and there was a woman called Maureen who was taking driving lessons, and she became a sort of national icon for a while because she was sort of a hopeless, hopeless driver. And um, the idea of sort of the ordinary person being elevated to celebrity and all of their sort of flaws and quirks being magnified seemed very interesting to us, and and we sort of lent into that with the fake documentary style. Well, let's hear a scene from The Office. Um, this is Gervais filling out a performance review for the receptionist for The Office, played by Lucy Davis. Okay, if you had to uh, name a role model, someone who's influenced you, who would it be? What, like a historical person? No, someone in sort of general life, just oh. someone who's been an influence on um, you. In... Well, I suppose my mum. She's just she's strong, calm in the face of adversity. Um, oh. God, I remember when she had a hysterectomy. If it wasn't your mother, though. I mean, it doesn't even have to be a woman. It could be a... Man. Um, Okay, well, I suppose if it was a man, it'd be my father. Not your father, Uh, I mean. Let's take your parents as red. I'm looking for someone in the sort of work-related arena. Right, okay, well, um, I suppose Tim, then, he's always... Well, he's a friend, isn't he? Not a friend. Uh, Someone in authority. Maybe I didn't 
you know. Uh, well, then I suppose Jennifer. Oh, I thought we said not a woman, didn't we, or am I? Uh, okay. Well, I suppose you're the only one who. Oh. Embarrassing has backfired, hasn't it? <laughs> oh dear. Very flattering. I don't, can we put me? I don't know. Okay, Tim. Then we said not Tim. So do you want to put me or not? Okay. Right. So shall I put strong role model? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a that's a very funny moment, but it's such a terrible moment where she's trying to talk about her mother's hysterectomy and he just just doesn't hear any of it. Right, like, right. Well, I, I hadn't heard that for a long time. It was very, it was very charming to hear that again. So, obviously, there was an American version of The Office that was also wildly popular, starring Steve Carell as Michael Scott, paper company in Scranton. Um, and there's a lot of similarities between the two shows, particularly like in the early episodes of the American version, but they definitely have a different tone to them. How would you compare them? Well, I take pride in the fact that I was something of a historian of comedy and TV and I'd studied it at university. And one of the things I'd noticed when they tried to adapt British shows to America's was sometimes the original British people came and tried to do it themselves. And often they didn't work because much as we grow up with American TV and culture, we don't really, know, we haven't lived here. We, it's not in our bones being American. And it was important to us, and I sort of was very kind of um, badgered, Ricky, about this idea that we needed an American uh, to do it, and also who would understand and could get the sensibility of our show, but translate it effectively to America. And my concern on the initial series was that it was too close to our version, and that it it should kind of spread its wings more and and be its own thing. And I think between the first and second seasons, Steve Carell had his hit movie, uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin, and I think the network wanted to sort of soften the Michael Scott character slightly and make him slightly more kind of lovable in the way that Steve was in that movie. And I think that uh, Greg very wisely sort of agreed with that, and they, and they sort of started to take it away sort of from the slightly bleaker, more existential version of the British, uh, the British version, and 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 move into something um, just a little bit more uh, user friendly. Is that right? And and so still kind of with some sharp edges, and still with some satire, and still with some some sort of dark comic moments. But just you know, open up the world, open up the other characters, and just bring a little bit more sunshine into this grey office. Yeah, I, that that sounds right to me. It feels like the British version is much more sort of cringe inducing and awkward and. Even the David Brent character is, is more repugnant than the Michael Scott. I, I, I'm just wondering if you think that British audiences have different expectations than American audiences in terms of comedy, if you're, in your experience? Well, I think what we have grown up with in the UK is a series of hit comedies about quite unpleasant men. Right back to uh, a comedian called Tony Hancock in the 1960s, who at that time was the biggest comedy star in the UK. And he was on screen, played a sort of failing actor who was quite petty and, you know, quite selfish. And he would clear the streets, famously. When his show was on, the streets, the pubs, everything would be empty. People were watching Tony Hancock. But he's quite a malevolent character. And he's... and. And then that was sort of followed in the 70s by Basil Fawlty, the John Cleese character, who again is a sort of petty little Englander uh, hotelier. And and I think we were sort of in a tradition of that. And I think the British audience is very used to sort of laughing at quite sort of small, petty men. And whether it's a sort of exorcism for us or something, I don't know. And I think I'm not sure that tradition is quite the same in the US. I think maybe you 
you appreciate winners more than we do. You know, we, we quite like laughing at losers. Um, so maybe that's something to do with it. Uh, I don't know. But um, but like you say, certainly I think they, 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 they softened some of the edges of Michael Scott, but I think in a very effective way. You said that you gravitate towards uh, socially awkward comedy in part because you were an awkward teenager. And I think that has something to do with just how tall you are. You're six feet, seven inches. Is that right? That's right. How old were you when you started to outgrow your peers? You know, it seems like I I always was. I can't really remember. Probably, you know, in my early teens, my memory is that I've always been taller than everybody else. And as you say, that made me quite self-conscious. And you know, that dream that you wish you could go back and talk to your younger self with the knowledge you have now. And the knowledge I have now is people want to be tall. People dream of being tall. And for some reason, I didn't realize that. And no one ever bloody well told me. So I was very, I felt very awkward because I was taller than everybody else. And I should have led into that like a superpower. Um, And instead, it did make me quite self-conscious. And I think you know, someone once said to me in an interview, do you think you went into comedy to control when people laugh at you? And I don't know if that's true. It may be true. Um, Certainly, I think there was a feeling that if people are going to point and laugh at you anyway, they may as well pay you to do it. It was part of that. Well, you know, you said you felt awkward at at that age, but I I bet you you probably were physically awkward. I mean, your body changed so rapidly. You, you it's probably a lot of people are clumsy, like in their teenage years. Yeah. You don't really know how to even control your body at that point, especially if it's grown so tall so quickly. Well, I think it's also that you, just the simple things like not being able to buy clothes very easily, you know? And so, so many of the sort of conventions of, of uh, youth, you know, going out with your friends and clothes shopping. And it's like, it was just, just was kind of cut off to me because unless they were all going to come to the the big and tall store, <laughs> yeah. you know, there were, I wasn't going to find clothes that fit. And so you, you can't sort of, you can't create a style. You can't create a look for yourself. You can't choose to be, you know, um, I don't know, like a rocker, you know, or whatever, because you just can't find the clothes to fit. So you end up wearing whatever fits. And it's sort of, and so you never quite walk around feeling like you're owning yourself. You know, you feel like you're sort of making do a little bit. And, um, and it's funny the little things like that, which yeah, which which dictate sort of how your, your self confidence, I suppose. Yeah, I'm I'm not super tall myself, but I've I've noticed that people really feel compelled to talk to tall people just about like how tall they are. Like people will go to up to strangers and and ask them their height. Uh, that's probably happened to you. People probably asked if you play basketball. But I mean, what do you think that compulsion is? That desire to 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 talk to tall people. I think it's not just about do you play basketball and what's the weather like up there, which I get a lot of. It's also making jokes. Um, they, people can just meet you. And, you know, I remember being in a bar not so long ago, ordered a drink, and a person I just met said, oh, that's a tall order, and everyone laughed. And I just thought, but you'd never make a joke like that about a very small person. No, well, that's also, it's a terrible joke. Well, it is, but it's funny because I think what it is—I I mean, funny in the sense that you know, it's 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 amusing looking at it from the outside because I think people think tall is a victory that somehow you've—it's an achievement. As I said, because people want to be tall, I think they think that you. Uh, uh, somehow accomplish something. And therefore, why would you be self-conscious about it? Why would you be offended if they brought it up? It's it's a success. 
Um, it's something you can be proud of, and therefore they can comment on it. Um, whereas, as you say, for me, it's just, I've heard all the comments before, I've got no new take on them, it's not a conversation starter. Do I play basketball has a very binary answer, yes or no, and it's no, there's nowhere to go with that conversation. Um, and so, you know, it's odd that people feel, you know, it, it, they can comment on it, uh, you know, and, and it's interesting in a, in, a, in a climate in comedy in which there's sensitivities to every subject matter. Being tall is one that people can still openly joke about. Stephen Merchant, thanks so much for being on Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. Stephen Merchant co-created the British comedy The Office. His most recent show is a comedy thriller on Amazon Prime called The Outlaws. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brigger. 